Welcome back to Freedom Fridays. In this episode of Freedom Fridays, we are going to answer a question that comes out of our discussion from last week on Calvinism. If God is absolutely sovereign, am I still responsible for my actions? Well, we're going to take a look at what the scripture says about that. How can a sovereign God hold me accountable for my actions? Well, first of all, let's take a look at whether that fact is true or not, whether he does hold you accountable. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So you are accountable for your actions, according to the word of God, that whatever you sow, you will reap. And so there will be an accountability for what you do. So how is it that God can do that? Um, being that he is sovereign. We're going to take a look at that. First uh, Luke 2, or 22, verse 22. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Speaking of Judas Iscariot here, and even though Judas um, was the one who was prophesied to betray him, he still is held accountable for that betrayal. Um, indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but... Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. He is still held accountable. How is it that God can do that? If we go to Jeremiah chapter 18, he explains some of that in the first 10 verses. Jeremiah chapter 18, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go to the potter's house. And there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it to another vessel, and it pleased the potter to make, as it pleased the potter to make. Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. And so we are seeing God's sovereignty here. But in the midst of this, don't stop right there, because he's going to also explain the accountability. Verse 8, If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. Or, at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So God is still holding them accountable, 
even though he is sovereign. And you say, well, how can that all work well together? I, I know that, that God is good. I know that God is just, that God is holy and righteous. So how is it that God can hold me accountable when I have no choice? This is one of those things that we don't have all of the answers for. Um, just like where sovereignty of God and the free will of man intersect. Where do they intersect? We know that the scripture teaches both things. As we talked about last week, we know that the, the scripture teaches the sovereignty of God, but the, the scripture also teaches you know, that we have a choice and we have many choices. So how does that all work together? These are the things that we need to accept by faith, understanding the omniscience of God, that he knows everything, and that there is absolutely nothing beyond his understanding, his omnipotence, his love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, all of the characteristics of God that play in here, we need to just accept this by faith that God has it worked out. You and I can't understand. You and I are unable, incapable to understand the, the way that things that, according to our view, are complete diametrically opposed to each other, how they can connect and intersect at some point. It's like two parallel lines still meeting at some point in infinity, in infinity and God knows how that can happen, even though they're parallel. Is, is how it appears in our minds. But God has this all worked out. Suffice it to say that as we trust the Word of God, because we trust the God of the Word, then we must realize that in your mind, you are accountable for what you do, what you say, and what you think. This argument is usually brought by somebody who's trying to um, justify themselves or their actions or their thoughts at some way in some way shape or form so that they can do sin but still not be accountable for it and that leads us to the next question if God has forgiven our sins and we are under grace can we then just sin at will and not be held accountable for that sin? For, for uh, we believe strongly in the perseverance of the saints. We believe strongly in the, um, that when you are put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and he saves you from your sins, that you cannot lose that salvation. We believe strongly that the scripture teaches that and teaches it plainly that you cannot lose your salvation. So if you cannot lose your salvation and all of your sins, past, present, and future, are already forgiven, then can you just sin willy-nilly and there's no consequences? Well, we're going to take a look in Romans chapter 6, but remember salvation, eternal security, 
is not the only consequence. Whether you go to heaven or hell is not the only consequence that can happen because of your sin. There are many other consequences that can happen. But let's take a look at Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? He's anticipating a very similar question to what we just asked. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? This type of question is, if God's grace is, is applied to me every time I sin, shouldn't I just sin more so I get more grace? And he says in verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Are you kidding? He says, you, you, you already died to this. Why, why would you want to go back to it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, verse 3, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he has died. He who has died is freed from sin. Before salvation, we were slaves to sin. Now that has died, and we have a new nature. Why would we want to go back? Are you kidding me? Why would we want to go back to all of that corruption? Why would we want to go back to that slavery? Why would we want to go back to, to all of that garbage? And he continues on um, through the next couple sections, and we're going to skip down to verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? This is the exact same question that we just asked. He says again, may it never be, or in some translations, God forbid, God forbid us to ever do such a thing. Why? Do you not know, verse 16, that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So we have been made slaves of righteousness. So don't go back to being a slave of sin. If if sin entraps you and it does, it it it's enslaves people, then why would you want an area of your life that is controlled by sin? This is the hallmark of what we now call addictions, and we seem to have an addiction to sin. Not all addictions are chemical. In fact, majority of addictions are not chemical. They're more of in the mind. They're idols of the heart. They're they're not chemical addictions, and the sin that we continue to do habitually is exactly that. It is an addiction of the heart. Um, verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed 
free in regard to righteousness, therefore what benefit were you of the were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? And the answer is nothing. What benefit were you deriving? They were they were dragging you down and sending you to hell. They were corrupting your life. They were trashing all of your relationships. They were absolutely distorting the truth. Why would you want to go back there? For the outcome of those things is death. Verse 22, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So your sanctification is because of your freedom. You're becoming more like Christ. And he sums it up in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, do you want to live free like eternal life, or do you want to live like you're a slave to death? That's really the question here. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 down through 16, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? James is taking a little bit different approach on this same question. He's saying, if you have faith, and but you're not willing to do the works for it, you're not willing to, um, to follow in obedience, then what use is it? And can that kind of faith save someone? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give what, uh, them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, verse 17, faith without works, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And he anticipates the rejection. Verse 18, but if someone may, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me. And he says, show me your faith by, without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You can't show that you have faith just because you say it. You show it by the way that the faith changes you. That's your actions. You believe that God is one. You say you've got faith. You believe that in God, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his, uh, Isaac his son on the, altar, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So is it his actions that justified him? Is his actions that made him righteous? It was the faith working out the actions. See, faith is not impotent. Faith must produce something. It, it doesn't just not change you. When you go from being a slave to sin to being a slave of righteousness, that doesn't just happen and, and nothing changes. It has to change. And so that's his question here, is how can that not change us? In fact, he says in chapter 1, verse 22 and following, 
But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then he goes to say, it's like looking in a mirror, turning away and not even realizing that you were there. It doesn't make any sense. If we go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we hang our hat on that, and we say, see, God has justified us without our works. That is true. However, don't stop before verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So our works are the direct result of our faith. If you don't have works, you need to look back and see if you have faith, because faith is the causation for the works. If we go to Matthew chapter 7, uh, down in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. This is Jesus speaking. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This situation is people who were trying to do the works, but didn't have the faith. And so he's saying you need both. You don't just do the works. Um, you need to not just do the will of my Father, but you need to have the faith and do the work, the will of my Father. And he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And you know the rest of that story. He's got his house on the rock. So when the storm comes, it stays there. The, the fool has his house on the sand. The fool is the one who doesn't do follow up on what he says he has faith in and just hears, does not do it. Well, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week on Freedom Fridays. Mm-hmm.